Carol Adams is a feminist vegan advocate, activist, and independent scholar. Since she was a young academic, Adams has kept a detailed diary documenting her thoughts on feminist theory, veganism, and her own personal relationship with the two. Her early interests quickly transformed into a deep desire to explore the connections between these ideas, challenging the way we think about meat consumption and our own preconceived notions of masculinity. Today, I talk with Adams about her first book on the subject, The Sexual Politics of Meat, an inspiring and controversial examination of the interplay between contemporary society's ingrained cultural misogyny and its obsession with meat and masculinity. Take a listen. with Carol Adams, who is the author of the groundbreaking book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, as well as a book in our object lesson series, Burger. So uh, welcome, Carol. I'm really excited for this. I I told you before I was a big fan of your work, so I'm really looking forward to speaking. Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to talk with you and great to be part of a Bloomsbury podcast. So um, the way I want to get started is to talk a little bit about your background. There's this amazing animation on your website where you talk about your path to feminism and your path to veganism. Um, Would you mind discussing that a little bit? No, that's fine. Um, I I grew up a feminist uh, with parents who uh, were very liberal in terms of how they viewed uh, roles in the 50s and the 60s. With two sisters, we were always encouraged. I got to college and it's at the, you know, the beginnings of the second wave, as it's been called. And I think in 1970, I would consciously say I became, you know, a card carrying feminist. I haven't, <laughs> I, I still have my name tag from my first feminist meeting. Um, then if you leap forward a couple of years to 73, I've just come home from my first year at Yale Divinity School. We'd grown up with ponies. We'd We'd ridden them. They were just like friends to us. We used to Mm -hmm. lie on their backs in the lazy summer days and just talk. They'd just be flicking their tails and would just be lying on their backs, talking under a huge willow. And um, I just had gotten back from Yale and a neighbor knocked on the door and said that my pony had just been shot by hunters. that night I went to bite into a hamburger and suddenly realized that I was eating a dead cow, that I would not eat Jimmy, the pony who had just died. So why was I eating a dead cow? And that I was a hypocrite. I really believe that feminist consciousness helped me make those thoughts. The feminist concept of uh, the personal is political and consciousness raising where you use your own experience to reflect on the world. Mm. Well, I took that the next step and realized that feminism was a way of thinking about animals. And that led to uh, writing the sexual politics of need over a 15-year period. Right. And and so you, you've mentioned before that the uh, manifestation of the sexual politics of me and your book, Burger, were really different. I mean, would you like to talk about that a little bit? So Burger, which I just loved writing, uh, I I knew what I wanted to do with it right from the start, and I was so thankful to be part of the Object Lesson series, which sort of imposes a format and a length, and um, it 
I liked that intellectual challenge. Could I do what I wanted to do within that rubric? And so I had lots of fun with it. But like the sexual politics of me, Berger was a case of a leap of imagination. That only took a year or two to uh, figure out my thoughts and writing to catch up with my leap of imagination, unlike sexual politics of meat. But but specifically, I was in the London office of uh, Bloomsbury to meet with the editor who oversees the Bloomsbury Revelation series. And I had just looked at all the object lessons on the desk when I walked into uh, the Bloomsbury office. And he was saying, what else are you thinking of doing? And I, I it just kind of, I didn't even know I was thinking it until I said it. And I said, I want to write about Burger for object lessons. So by that afternoon, I had <laughs> dashed off an email to Harris, the, the editor who oversees that in the New York office and said, hey, what do you think of this? <laughs> I think the reason I wanted to do Burger is I felt that um, the Burger had a stereotype. I wanted to sort of burrow under the stereotype. I wanted to disturb the stereotype. Mm. And uh, a couple things that I realized as I worked on it was that uh, a burger is really a single portion protein patty. And once I defined it like that, well, then the burger is released from having to be a hamburger which entitled me to then roam through history to find other examples of single portion protein patties like the falafel, which certainly uh, came before the burger. So when we have conversations today, people will say, oh, well, why do you want the texture of a hamburger? And, you know, I'll say, well, why did hamburgers want the texture of the falafel? Uh, (laughs) I kind of liked that that I could be a sort of trickster in the book. Uh, The other thing that I realized was that the hamburger is sort of an example of modernism that's exhausted itself. And the proof of that isn't just the diseases that are now associated with it, uh, you know, E. coli uh, epidemics and mad cow and uh, all that, but also the environmental crisis. And so what do we do with an exhausted object. Mm. Yeah, you describe the burger or America's obsession or the American burger as an undergoing an identity crisis. Is is that what you mean? I mean, in what ways are we undergoing an identity crisis with the burger? Well, I think uh, the hamburger always seemed to be almost uh, uh, a synonym for li- living in the United States. And mm-hmm. that's why in the first chapter, I, I have the, the, the reference to, um, uh, and Lord, now I'm forgetting the movie, uh, uh, where they go to, go to White Castle. And- oh, um, uh, what's it called? Her- Wait, oh my God, now I can't remember it. Harold and something? Yes, Kumar. Harold and go Kumar to go to White Castle. <laughs> and there's this wonderful speech by, Uh, Kumar at the end, just before they finally get to White Castle, where he says, you know, hamburgers, they're American. They're why my my parents came to this country. This is why immigrants struggle to come to the United States. And it's really over the top. But it's this idea that hamburgers are innately uh, U.S. And so once you've got this sort of synonym going, U.S. hamburger, U.S. hamburger, then what do we do with the fact that, first of all, the hamburger has always had a problem? 
it is dead flesh that could decay very carefully, you know, very easily without refrigeration, mm-hmm. etc. It also can be easily replaced, as we now see with uh, the the sort of adoption of plant-based meats by Burger King and White Castle. Uh, and it also, right from the beginning, from the end of the 19th century, there was the hamburger, but there were also vegetarians creating veggie burgers. So for as long as we've known of the hamburger, veggie burgers were sort of nipping at its heels, though because it was an invisible economy related to the Seventh-day Adventists, people didn't track it, did not recognize it. Until now, we sort of have a super fluidity fluidity of uh, of, uh, veggie burgers, Uh, so many different kinds, and then the fast food uh, companies adopting uh, burgers that certainly the hamburger does have an identity crisis. It is seen as one of the main contributors to uh, climate change because of its reliance on uh, cows, dead cows, who, uh, at, when they're alive, are are really sort of living factories of uh, global warming. Uh, and of course, they're, they're living beings who we completely ignore. I think the other reason that it's undergoing a identity crisis is the uh, attention that animal defense activists have brought to the life of the cow. Most people don't realize that uh, burgers come from dairy cows, uh, and 25% of dairy cows, when they're killed, are pregnant. And sometimes those calves are alive after the death of the cow. Um, Somehow, that seems gratuitously cool. And somehow I think that's a way in for hamburger eaters to think about hamburger eating, but I don't know. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of Americans, there's a huge disconnect between what's on our plate and where it comes from. I think now with all of these documentaries about factory farming, hopefully people are a little bit more aware of the gratuitous violence, as you say, or gratuitous cruelty against animals. So, you know, in my lifetime as a as a vegetarian vegan myself, I've I've have noticed people talking about it more and being less dismissive of it um, over the last decade or so, probably because there's more consciousness raising on behalf of animal activists. Um, But you did also mention uh, these fast food companies hopping on the plant-based protein train. And it's, it's quite controversial. I mean, on the one hand, having these, I don't know, it's it's a good thing, of course, to have these major fast food industries adopting that. But of course, they're also simultaneously still. I, I don't know how do you how do you feel about it? I don't want to answer for you. <laughs> I've got my own opinions clearly. <laughs> well, I finally went to a Burger King to get an Impossible Whopper, and when I was standing in line, I turned around and started talking to everybody. You know, saying. This is what the Impossible Whopper is. You could substitute. It's it, you're you're not going to miss the taste. And did you know cows? You know, la la da da da. So uh, I, I wonder if we we uh, need to do some augmentation of this work because I've read some initial studies that say that what the Impossible Whopper did was bring in new customers, but did not change the old customers. I, I don't know. I, I it's funny. I oh, I was just at a doctor's and 
one of his patients runs at a, a Burger King and he said the he asked him about the impossible whopper and it was brought he he brought it in for the whole office and they all were excited about it and I said well now this is what you can order and you know did you know cows <laughs> and uh not that it's a laughing matter but just that I have happened to be a broken record on the subject. Um, and I, I could see them all trying to register this and think about whether this was going to change them. But all of that to say that the people who founded both Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, the people behind the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, uh, which are now found in, in a variety of places, uh, their vision was not to reach vegans. Their vision was to re- reach meat eaters who think they can't give up their hamburger. It's and in one sense, it we've got a problem with the privatization of consumption, so that people don't see the implications of their own choices for uh, the global uh, community for animals. Uh, and for themselves, if there are health health related issues, so whether changing uh, to an impossible whopper changes that basic problem of the privatization of consumption, it probably doesn't. But any step, I think, towards disinvesting the hamburger is a really important step. Mm-hmm. Anything that disturbs or knocks the hamburger off of its sort of fetishized role in our culture. Is, is a step forward. I'd like to mention that there's a third company, Hungry Planet. They haven't gotten quite as much informa- in, uh, attention because their way of going about disseminating their product, uh, which is a thicker patty, uh, is a little different. They've reached out to hospitals and, and other institutions. They, they uh, were developed by a chef and they've got chefs who go and teach other chefs. But uh, their product is really great, too. And you can order it uh, from a, a vegetarian online uh, group. So you've got three different ways of sort of disseminating this new product. Meanwhile, there's many of us who still like to make our own veggie burgers. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to ever have it be that the synonym for plant-based meat is veggie burger, so that people think there isn't this diversity of ways of, of making the texture that that people like. So in um, Burger, I asked a friend who's an artist uh, to take a chart I drew or made up that shows all the different things that can go into a burger and could she illustrate it? <laughs> she, it, it it's so beautiful and so wonderful what she did, but it just shows the diversity that you could have within the world of sort of veggie burger. Mm. Do you have a favorite, like a personal uh, favorite recipe for a veggie burger? I like black bean burgers. Mm. I've also, I've got a new recipe, a sort of walnut shiitake mushroom burger. And then another one (laughs) with garbanzo beans and shiitakes and walnuts. So I think I'm going to play around, though a a really good go-to recipe is any black bean burger. Mm. I have tried and tried to like the like the beet burger, and um, I'm I haven't fallen into place there yet uh, with <laughs> with the beet burger. But beets are often used to make a burger colored and uh, that specific red bloody color that uh, people associate with the hamburger. 
which is really strange, isn't it? You know, that people, uh, you know, the whole issue of the hamburger, that it needs to look bloody. Uh, well, that's back to sexual politics of meat, too. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It is uh, quite a nice transition, actually. I mean, the whole idea of making a veggie burger look bloody or uh, there is this huge disconnect, I think, um, when, you know, you insist very rightfully so on calling them dead cows as opposed to beef. There's all this sort of euphemistic language and all this imagery that idolizes the idea of the burger or other kind of meat products. Um, and that's something that you talk a lot about in sexual politics of meat uh, with the idea of the absent referent. Do you want to explain what the absent referent is? Because, yeah, it underpins quite a bit of your theory. Yes, and I think it. Uh, I'll also back up a little and just talk about why it took 15 years to write the sexual politics <laughs> of meat, because I did have a very early draft two years after I had the ideas, uh, you know, that leap of imagination. And I remember looking at the draft and thinking, all I'm doing is saying, this is like this, this is like this, this is an analogy, and it's not strong enough. So I put it aside. I, be, I, I was very involved in activism in upstate New York around domestic violence and and, and racism in housing and, and working with resettled migrant workers. And I, I sort of incubated all these ideas and knew that the minute we revert to an analogy, we are weakening our argument. I see this now in animal rights and vegan arguments. I see so many times that they go to analogy. Oh, well, this is like this, you know, and PETA mm. is a, a big offender there uh, with the Holocaust on your plate so that how we treat animals is like the Holocaust or it's like slavery, which doesn't actually understand that we're not talking about analogical oppressions. We're talking about interconnected oppressions, overlapping oppressions. And so it was in 1987 that I came across a, a literary book that was talking about Frankenstein, actually, because that was part of uh, my work of the 80s to try to understand why Frankenstein's monster was a vegetarian. So I was reading everything to sort of um, help ferment the idea. And this book introduced the concept of the absent referent. An example from Frankenstein would be that the monster writes upon a tree to leave a note for Victor towards the end of the novel when Victor is, is chasing the monster. So that's the absent referent where, where uh, you're actually getting marks upon a, a tree. But another example of an absent referent uh, would be Wordsworth's famous poem about the daffodils, uh, seeing, you know, 100,000 daffodils or however many on the hill, that you cannot be in the presence of the daffodils and write your poem. The poem is the recollection of the daffodils after you've left the field where you encountered them. So that the absent reference are the thing that catalyzed the poem, but they must be absent to allow the poem to come into existence. Hmm. And I remember putting the book down and thinking, well, that's what animals are. They are absent from meat and dairy and eggs for those uh, sort of quote unquote food products to exist. The animals must be absent. The animals are literally absent in, in flesh, and mm. they're often absent. I mean, they're not at the table when you're drinking cow's milk. Um, so that this, uh, it, it was like that first leap of imagination. When I have an insight like that, I, I feel it electrically in my body. Um, 
uh, in the, the little animation, I talk about feeling like I could, you know, I, I levitated. Uh, and I went to sleep then. And I woke up the next morning and I must have dreamt about it because in the morning I thought, and that's what women are too. Women are absent mm-hmm. reference in a culture that sexually objectifies us. And we, we see this recently in even the way the language about Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, the serial sexual rapist or uh, other men are talked about. So, for instance, you'll see references to underage sex. Well, it wasn't <laughs> underage sex. It was rape. It was child rape. Exactly. Uh, so the, the young women, the, well, not women, the young children, the young girls become absent reference to their own victimization. And then what I realized was that in this patriarchal culture we live in that is vested in uh, the oppression of animals, animals and women are overlapping absent reference where our oppression is used to mobilize and justify animal oppression and animal oppression is used to justify and mobilize uh, women's oppression. And then you take that and you realize that uh, African-Americans were the absent referent in what we call benignly slavery rather than the holding of people as property. Native Americans are the absent referent in any reference to settling the West. We didn't settle the West. We committed genocide killing off Buffalo, the Plains, and the Native Americans, and then taking over that land, which is called settler colonialism, Hmm. which leads back to Burger, too, because the hamburger only exists because we did that to to the land and the peoples and the bison. Um, So in a sense, the absent reference in hamburger are the cows, the Native peoples who lived on the plains, the mm. buffalo, and the the plains that's themselves. So what the absent referent does is it deepens our understanding of how oppression works so that we're able to recognize this overlap or interconnection. Absolutely. And I mean, reading this book, it's just incredible because when you wrote it initially, in the idea of intersectionality wasn't really a dominant narrative in our cult, our mainstream cultural consciousness. It obviously is now. Um, reading this, the whole book is deeply intersectional between the oppressions of women and animals and people of color and people who are victims of colonialism, as you say. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which, well, at least right now between women and animals, the ways in which the oppressions of women and animals are intertwined? Yes, but could I give a historical footnote first? Of course you can. (laughs) (laughs) Sexual Politics of Meat was completed in 1989, which is the same year as uh, when Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectional, uh, wrote her her foundational article. Mm -hmm. But for me as a second wave feminist, I had encountered the idea of interconnected oppressions in the statement of the Combahee River Collective in 1978. And there is a new book uh, uh, that uh, interviews the women who, uh, the black uh, feminist women uh, who came up with that term 
uh, called How We Get Free, which I would really recommend. But um, the introduction includes a statement that they, the Combahee women did not coin the phrase, but they did articulate the analysis that animates the meaning of intersectionality, the idea that multiple oppressions reinforce each other to create new categories of suffering. And I read uh, the Combahee River Collective Statement back when it came out in 1978. And I was reading other work, eco-feminist work, that had identified the overlap uh, of, of women and nature and, and then, uh, you know, became one of the people writing, eco-feminist writing that placed animals, you know, named animals as part of that conjoining of oppression. Um, so at this point, you know, 30 years later, intersectionality is a term that I think is used more frequently than it's understood. Mm-hmm. And Crenshaw rightly is concerned that it is um, becoming so elasticized and stretched that its original meaning is getting lost. Um, when I talked about interconnected oppressions and then other uh, eco-feminists were talking about that too, we were trying to say that our movements have to align themselves that, you know, I started a hotline for battered women and I, I was on the New York state, um, commission, uh, the governor's commission on domestic violence. And I'd go to these meetings and everybody was eating (laughs) hamburgers. And I'd say, you know, there's a connection here that, that uh, between this violence on the plate and this violence in the home, we, we need to talk about it. I mean, in the 1980s, everybody looked at me like, Carol, let's get back to talking about housing. You're really an expert on housing. Could we get back to discussing housing? But now what what I feel happened is that in the 1990s, when we were discussing this, you know, it wasn't just sexual politics of meat, but the work of Marty Keel and some of the uh, writers who are uh, in our ecofeminism text that Bloomsbury brought out in 2014, there was a rich dialogue going on, but there were many vegans and animal rights activists who were white men, and they wanted those movements to be single issue. Mm. And I feel we are reinventing the wheel when all of that information was there in the 90s, and that now we end up with a sort of uh, almost you know, you've got to have this badge. I'm an intersectional vegan or something where it's not understood. And what we're hearing often sometimes is analogies. This is like this cow's milk, you know, cows are victims of rape. Uh, And I'm very uncomfortable because are we making other victims of rape absent reference, aren't we triggering uh, people who are rape survivors? So I think there's a lot of energy now around intersectionality, but I'd like to ground that energy in theory. I mean, I wrote the sexual politics of me because I believed in theory, but I was an activist and I wanted to show that activists can create theory and that theory can help help influence activism. I think you know, we we don't even know the extent at which we could be making connections because we're just coming out of this period of time in which connections were resisted. Mm. 
I mean, another really interesting connection that I didn't think about that much before reading this that you make is the relationship between meat eating and late capitalism. <laughs> you know, how we even understand labor is totally informed or at least uh, sort of has this symbiotic relationship with our eating, right. our meat eating practices. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? That, well, that uh, Ford's idea of the, uh, assembly line supposedly came from him watching the disassembly line in Chicago at the end of the 19th century. And Chicago, of course, became, you know, this butcher of, of hogs, this uh, place of, of uh, ongoing death. I mean, just to footnote that, it's one of the first times that we've got slaughterhouses that are using replaceable labor. And we've got that same thing today where slaughterhouses are using, you know, what you could call replaceable labor, they're using non-documented, undocumented immigrants. They actively uh, recruit non-undocumented immigrants because the minute undocumented immigrants give you a problem, like they want to organize a union or they want to talk about safety issues, which are, you know, quite compelling in slaughterhouses, they can be uh, sent out of the country. I mean, we have delivered to slaughterhouse operators today one of the best ways of not changing because the, the labor pool is so um, so fragile in terms of their status in the United States that they can't organize. And we know that slaughterhouses are the most dangerous places to work. Uh, so I need to footnote that footnote and just say so that when someone says to me, hamburgers are cheaper, I say to them, why are they cheaper? Are you really happy that you are helping slaughterhouses not pay workers health insurance mm -hmm. and cause uh, slaughterhouse workers to be expelled from this country the minute they raise health issues or uh, safety issues or labor issues? And it's been found that often it is the undocumented workers who also raise issues of humane treatment of animals. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, uh, it, what we have in slaughterhouses almost becomes a metaphor for late capitalism. But uh, Ford takes this model, creates the assembly line in which you are become alienated from the end product, and uh, then one of the things we know that comes from, you know, what's called Fordism is that the way to compensate for this alienated labor is you become a consumer. Mm. So we end up with a consumer culture. And so um, this other book I'm reading right now, A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None by Catherine Yusoff, talks about extraction, that capitalism Ha, has always had a commitment to extracting, extracting peoples, extracting things from the ground, uh, and, and slaughterhouses are extraction as well. They're extracting a product from a living being. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that also really touches upon this idea that I've been thinking about a lot, this dissonance, as you say, between other kinds, other forms of activism and meat eating, because often when I talk to people, they'll dismiss people who really care about veganism because they say that, you know, 
they obviously care more about the oppression of animals than the oppression of people. But that's clearly not true because they're so interconnected. You're right. It is so intrinsically connected to labor practices that it's just as exploitative as other I don't know, other industries like the clothing industry, for instance, or fast fashion industry, rather. Well, except that in the middle of it, you've got not just the alienated labor, but the the animal whose labor is to produce themselves as a product. I mean, mm. they are a model for alienated labor and it's their bodies that 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 are the product they are themselves producing or or milk, you know, and there's another form of extraction. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work by feminist scholars, feminist legal scholars, feminist geographers on on milk. That's that's absolutely brilliant and 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 very exciting. Um, but what what you refer to about people saying, "Oh, we care more about animals than humans," I've labeled that retrograde humanism, and mm. I talk about it in the Carol J. Adams Reader, which Bloomsbury brought out a couple years ago in a chapter on what came before the sexual politics of meat, because the only people who think it's impossible to do activism for humans while caring about animals are people who don't care about animals. I mean, yeah. I was starting a hotline for battered women while I cared about animals. I was working against racism. The impossibility is imposed from outside because people are thrown off. You know, oh, you mean I've got to care about something else as well? I mean, the mm. other part of that is consumption didn't just get sort of produced uh, through late capitalism. It got privatized. Uh, we're not supposed to think about our consumption as as having a political content. Uh, we're supposed to think of it as fulfilling individual needs. But who manufactured these needs? I mean, the need to eat animal flesh is is manufactured in us by a culture and a family before we even have words to protest. Mm-hmm. Um, but retrograde humanism is really dangerous because one of the things it does is it implies that that caring is divisible. Oh, we care about humans or we care about animals. Caring isn't divisible. My caring about cows and what they experience doesn't in any way lessen me from caring about the immigrant crisis we're in the middle of here in Texas, especially right now, or the the, the, the hatred of uh, and xenophobia of of our current president uh, towards immigrants. These are actually connected because one of the best ways to cause some people to fear other people is to liken those other people to animals, to impose, you know, what's called animality on an oppressed or disenfranchised group. Mm. So, So the very status of animals is leveraged to create xenophobia and white supremacy. But we don't ever kind of pull back to the next step, which is how was animality used against animals? This is an insight by Affensil Co. in a book called Afroisms, uh, which is about Black veganism. And they show how Blackness and animality got co-constructed in the past 500 years through white supremacy, that you can't talk about one without the other. The other danger of retrograde humanism is that it doesn't see the oppression of people who aren't getting services they need because they love animals. So, for instance, one of the things I've always been asked when people find out I'm a vegan is, well, what about battered women? 
well, you know, forget the fact that I worked with battered women. I'm not going to justify retrograde humanism with a fact of retrograde humanism. <laughs> what about battered women who don't go to shelters because they care about an animal who they can't leave behind? I mean, to ask a question like that is to ignore a population who themselves care about animals are, are further victimized because of their care. So uh, homeless people who can't go into a shelter because they have are caring for a cat or a dog. There are lots of homeless people who, who love their dogs. And, and you know, now home, some homeless shelters are creating uh, places for, for, to help with dogs. And the homeless shelter I worked with here in Dallas would monthly have vets come to help spay and neuter and, and uh, look and examine the dogs and see how they were. Mm. To, to fragment caring in that way is careless. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. So in the first part of this episode, you did touch upon the idea of, you know, the interconnectedness between this retrograde humanism, as you call it, like caring about animals does not mean that you don't care about the immigration crisis. Um, and that reminds me, it brings me to my my next question, which is, how do you feel sexual politics of meat is relevant in the Trump era or how is it rearticulated in the Trump era? Oh, my Lord, it is so <laughs> painful. Uh, you know, from the fact is that people voted for Trump because he was a misogynist. Yeah. His misogyny didn't turn people away. It made them turn towards him. The, the very famous tape from 2016 is every example of sexual politics of me that I talk about in chapter two, uh, where I talk about objectification, fragmentation, and consumption as a, a pattern that links women and animals as in terms of being overlapping uh, victims and absent reference. You know, he, he in this tape, this Hollywood Access tape, he, he's... Um, he objectifies women, then he fragments them, talks about different body parts, then consumption, you know, grab them by the, you know, pussy and all that. Uh, those are all, I mean, he's, he's example number one. He's the avatar of sexual politics of meat, <laughs> but also the sexual politics of meat that is talking about these problems of, of oppression of humans by saying they're animal-like. So that when he wants to talk about, say, Miss Universe, he calls her Miss Piggy. He's constantly animalizing uh, women of color. Uh, he's, he's deploying, and I use that word consciously as a war metaphor, he's deploying animalistic metaphors about anyone he wants his white supremacist flower, followers to hate. Um, I did do an article about the, uh, you know, the sexual politics of meat in the Trump era, and I'm right now revising the pornography of meat and updating it for it to come out next year. And, and I have a chapter on grab them by the, you know, what? You can uh, say pussy, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it's tied in with how we look at women's bodies. We animalize women's bodies. We've fragmented them. Uh, it's okay to joke about them. It's okay to want to touch them. It's okay to um, uh, sexually exploit them and boast about that. That whole um, worldview, which he represents, but not by himself, sort of got um, a, a kick up 
it, 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 it sort of got, yeah, let me lift you up into the world where you've been down there, you know, sort of hiding in, in, in different kinds of jokes. But here, let me bring you visible and let me encourage you to think like this, too. So it's a real setback. Uh, mm. It is a setback. I mean, it's, it, it feels it's a very grim time to be alive in so many different ways. I mean, I don't know. On, and on, on, on that note, I mean, where do we go from here? You talk about the personal being political, applying your theory into real life activism. What is the future of this movement? in the world that we live in right now under Trump or whoever comes after him? You know, how do we actually, in your vision of the world, how do we get things done? Well, uh, I, I don't know that I have uh, specific steps. I certainly am part of a whole, you know, many different movements that are trying to change things. I, I want to say I'll plug a book that I didn't do with Bloomsbury. It's Protest Kitchen. It's it's trying to give people 30 days, 30 steps of ways to recognize and enact how animals are part of a progressive movement. I mean, how incorporating an understanding of the status of animals helps us with food justice, climate change, compassion, even our notion of democracy. Uh, let's just say... Uh, that one of our problems is who is allowed to be a citizen in our culture. Mm. And that our, we have been narrowing and narrowing the notion of citizen. Uh, in, in the Constitution, the citizen was a white male property owner, property owner of people. Uh, and we seem to have this, what could be called an anthropomorphic notion of, of who is a human. Uh, and that human is supposed to be heterosexual, male, or male-identified. Uh, so even though part of my work tries to show how we anthropomorphize animals, the first victims of our anthropomorphism are humans. So for instance, um, uh, resistance to homosexuality, gays, lesbians, resistance to, to, to the transgender movement, all of that is because we've already imposed an anthropomorphic notion on what a human is. Mm. It's so limiting. And so as we work to, to really move change forward, there's something we could be doing every day. No matter whether we're on the streets or working in Congress or writing op-eds or uh, you know, down at the border, uh, or representing uh, uh, migrant children who've been held uh, in prisons, um, we could be eating vegan. We could we could simply every day make that commitment. We could also be making a commitment to recognize how oppressive language is constantly influencing how we view other people, um, and and work to resist that. Uh, we could also see that. This is a moment in which we are given a chance to really stand up for democratic principles and against totalitarianism. And totalitarianism is so closely linked to misogyny and white supremacy and, of course, you know, just presumes animal oppression. So my sister says, never waste a crisis. 
this is a good example of never wasting a crisis. We uh, we have these wonderful opportunities against hate. And um, one of the things I would say is even if you're someone who's an introvert, make cookies, vegan cookies, make food so that if you're going to support a protest, help feed feed the protest. If you don't feel you can, you know, stand in line or when we all went to the airports to protest back in, in 2017, bring vegan food, help to educate that veganism, let's not privatize veganism anymore. Let's bring veganism into this sphere of progressive resistance. Mm, beautifully said. Do you feel do you feel like we're moving in that direction? Do you feel hopeful about the fact that we're bringing veganism into a part of the progressive resistance? I think it's very slow. Uh, so, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm always willing to be uh, deliciously surprised. <laughs> I, I personally am. Maybe it's just a defense mechanism, but I, I do feel like there is actual consciousness raising um, happening, at least in my generation, people, I mean, they have to care, obviously, we're in so many different existential crises right now that people are uh, forced to abandon the idea of the absent referent and, and finally be honest with ourselves about what's going on and stop, you, you know, euphemizing everything. Well, I had a, a strange dream last night um, because I knew we were going to talk today and also reading about, you know, the latest terrible news about Trump. Uh, um, but I, I dreamt that the way that, that I wanted to find a way to say the way Trump uses language and the way Trump lies and the way, you know, for a while the media wouldn't call it lies. It's a misrepresented and all, all of those things that we criticize Trump for, those are things people eating animals and dairy are also doing. Mm. And it sounds so radical that I think if I hadn't had the dream, I don't know that I would have said it, but it's kind of true that we are not living with the truth of what animal agriculture is. We, uh, If you read about line speeds and slaughter, and you read about how pigs these female pigs that are held, held in gestation crates. And then when they're being moved to the farrowing crate, don't move fast enough. And so they're beaten. They have been immobile. And, and then they give birth and they're held in these crates and they can't do anything that a pig would naturally do uh, when she gives birth. And yet the representation of that is you're shown a sexy pig in a bikini who wants to be consumed. So that you you layer a, abysmal treatment with a misogynistic view. I, I've been looking at hundreds and hundreds of images for the pornography of meat. And all I can say is the disconnect between the way we represent animals who are going to be consumed or whose milk is used and, and eggs are used and the way they live is so the abyss between them is so striking I'm sure that's why I had that dream. Right. I mean, when you boil it down to every, when you boil it down, all of these oppressions are a result of a linguistic distancing that basically absolves us of 
moral personal responsibility when we refuse to call Trump a white nationalist or when we refuse to call meat dead flesh or dead animals we distance ourselves from really taking moral responsibility Right. And then we fall back on retrograde humanism that says, oh, yes, but we have to solve these human problems first because they're not they're not indivisible. We can't we can't constantly say, well, I guess I'll just back up and say it's kind of like thinking the earth is flat, that we have to solve the human problems first. And then, you know, we're going to the earth isn't flat. Earth is circular and these connections exist <clears throat> that we uh, we are constantly influenced by how we look at and treat animals, even if we aren't aware of it. And you know, that's why I believe in theory. That's why I believe in talking about and writing and spending 15 years, <laughs> you know, noodling it out, uh, the sexual politics of meat. I wrote that because I wanted people to understand that how we look at the world has been so constrained by the dominant culture. And because I believed that if you understood, you could be part of changing the world. Mm. That's a really beautiful note to end on, actually. Um, I Yeah, I just want to thank you so much for being a part of this. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Uh, once again, Carol Adams is the author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, as well as Burger. And you can also find the Carol Adams reader in our Bloomsbury Revolutions in print. So um, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Rebecca, for all the great questions. And uh, uh, I, uh, I, I've been honored to be part of this podcast. <laughs>